Hopefully you'll hold on to those and use them and take notes in them. Sylvia's had hers for 12 years. She brought it tonight. I am highly impressed. (laughs) All right, well, as I got to work these last couple of days, I um, thought we were going to get further than we are. (laughs) So we're just going to go, and when time's over, it's over, and we'll pick up where we leave off next week. Um, But I want to say a few things up front about where we're headed. Um, I I fully realize that a lot of the things that we're going to be covering will be very um, difficult to understand and conceptualize and everything else. Um, they, um, They have been very difficult for me, and I've spent the last... Um, two days refreshing myself on some of these, learning new things, reading new material, um, and being challenged by that. And it's been very rewarding for me, um, but I will be the first to admit some of these things are, are very, very difficult uh, to, um, to work through, but I think in their difficulty um, are very, very rewarding. And as we, uh, as we work through them, as I told you last time, my goal, my hope is that... Um, if nothing else, if you can walk away and maybe pronounce a few of the words we use tonight and, uh, and have some general idea of what they are, but more importantly, um, that your view of God is expanded and you have a greater uh, love for God because of how uh, magnificent He is and uh, what sort of awe should be inspired from what He has given to us, um, then I think uh, we've met our goal. But... Um, I think something else that this speaks to, and this is by uh, not necessarily any fault of our own, um, but it's interesting to read uh, um, sermons and books that were written in the 16th and 17th century and realize um, that these were things being preached and read by uh, the common person. Um, They're not, you know written by scholars. They're not read by scholars and theologians that are sitting in seminaries, but these were the things that were happening in all of the churches across the land at the time. Um, So it wasn't wasn't odd that a preacher would preach a sermon on the doctrine of divine impassibility. And um, probably we hear that today and have no clue what we're talking about when we say that. Hopefully by the end of, probably not this week, but next week, you'll have a better understanding of that. But um, it says a lot about uh, where the church has been and where we've gone. And um, so some would probably call me crazy for even diving into some of this, and maybe I am. Um, but I think uh, we can push ourselves and go further. So um, that's, that's our goal. Um, so let's uh, read paragraph 1 of chapter 2 again, and uh, then I'll point out where we're, uh, where we're headed. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose subsistence is in and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, one thing you're going to realize as we go through this, we're going to address things in um, statements that are made uh, that are later um, 
kind of stated again in a single word. So, for example, um, we dealt uh, a couple of weeks ago with um, the immutability of God. Well, we see um, that God is immutable is mentioned again. So as we press on through the paragraph um, a little bit more, some of these things we will have already seen and we'll skip around a little bit. But um, tonight we have to deal with... Um, certain doctrines that really all kind of tie together. So it's not real it's not really easy in one sense because we're having to kind of take a big bite and try to sort it out at the same time and deal with the individual parts of the whole. Um, but here's what we're going to um, try to work toward. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is the incomprehensibility of God. And we see that in the statement of the confession, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. This is, um, and we'll, we'll read the definitions I've given you in just a moment, but this, um, this is uh, something that is elaborated upon in part by the following statements, the statements that come after it, um, by the doctrine of simplicity. That is, God is without parts. And the doctrine of divine impassibility. God is without passions. So this is complicated on many different levels, not the least of which is this fact that all of these are very interconnected. Um, All these various doctrines and their implications uh, come from within one another. You can't talk about, you really can't talk about any of these without talking about the others. Um, So you'll kind of feel that we're going to be bouncing around a lot as we're dealing with them. Um, Additionally, the previous statement that we dealt with last time we met, um, God's subsistence is in and of himself infinite in being and perfection. We talked about that last time. It relates to the um, aseity, remember the self-existence of God, the infinity or his eternality, the fact that he always has been and always will be, and his immutability, the fact that God does not change. He is non-changeable. These are also very important stones in the foundation that we're uh, we're trying to build here so we can keep things um, standing properly. So without understanding God as self-existent, Eternal, unchanging. We had to think about those things. He's self-existent. Nothing created him. Nothing outside of him made him to be. Uh, He is self-existent. Nothing sustains him. He is eternal. He always has been and he always will be. And he is immutable or unchanging. He always will be what he is and always has been. Um. Think of those things as we begin to deal with the doctrines of simplicity and impassibility. Without those, that foundation that we've already laid, um, these other doctrines we're going to deal with, are, um, they are invalidated completely. So it seems helpful to deal with them as a whole, but in order to do that, we really have to define and defend the various parts to get a better grasp of the confession statement. And if you notice on your sheet, I highlighted uh, where it says that God is most absolute. This is the essence of God, and this is what we're dealing with, that God is most absolute. Um, So if we kind of take all of this as a whole, this is what we're dealing with, this reality that God is most absolute. And that kind of is maybe a summary for the, the compo- uh, composition of all of these things we're, we're going to deal with. So let's read some definitions. We're going to read them very slowly, and um, I'm going to stop after each one and answer any questions so that we can um, make sure that we're kind of, at least in some way, on the same page. The first, divine incomprehensibility. Again, the statement from the confession is that God's essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Here's the definition. An infinite God can never be fully understood by a limited or finite creature. Incomprehensible must be understood to mean unable to fully understand, as opposed to the more common meaning, unable to be understood. It is not true to say that God is unable to be understood, 
But it is true to say that he cannot be understood fully or exhaustively, either in whole or in part. In other words, man will never fully understand any single thing about God. Now, this is, uh, this is a, a tremendous statement, and this is really where we're going to spend most of our time uh, tonight as we, as we deal with this. But um, first, any, um, any clarifi- clarification needs to be done here. Everyone track in with that definition. So when we talk about God being incomprehensible, we're not saying, as the liberals have said in the past, especially in the 60s and 70s, we're not saying that God cannot be understood. What we are saying is we can never understand God fully. And that is a biblical statement. And we'll see where we see that in the scriptures. No man ever, any time in eternity, will ever know all there is to know about God. And beyond that, no man any time ever in eternity will even know all there is to know even about one single thing of God. And we'll explain why that is and we'll look at evidence from that in the scriptures. So that is a doctrine of divine incomprehensibility and we'll uh, dig, dig that out a little bit more in a moment. The next one we will deal with is divine simplicity. And I'm, if you're anything like me, you uh, read some of the things that have been written on this and you think about it and you realize this is anything but simple. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's not referring to um, that. Uh, the statement in the confession that divine simplicity deals with is that God is without parts. So let's read this. No principle or power stands before or alongside God by which he represents or understands his existence and essence. He alone is the sufficient reason for his own existence, essence, and attributes. He does not possess his perfections by relation to anything or anyone other than himself. God is not the sum total of his attributes, but is simultaneously and perfectly everything that all of the attributes reveal. There is nothing in God that is not God. Otherwise, something outside of God would be needed to account for his existence, essence, and attributes. On the other hand, each of God's attributes identifies a different aspect of God's existence and character that cannot be reduced to the others. That's probably a little more difficult than the last one we dealt with. So, ask me your specific questions and then I'll try to give maybe uh, an example that would be helpful. Any of these statements that you're just kind of scratching your head about completely? Sure. No, you're, you're, you're on the right track. You're, you're running on the right track. That's a good thing. <laughs> I can say double that with you, brother. And everyone else would agree with me, I assure you. <laughs> yeah, sure, in one sense... Um, we, um, we don't even, and this is something we'll deal with in more depth from the scriptures. We don't even know all there is to know of ourselves, um, let alone God. Um, so sure. Yeah. And you'll never know all the implications and, uh, applications of it for, for, uh, for certain. Okay. So what we're dealing, uh, as we talk about parts, um, what it's not addressing is like body parts, okay? Uh, there's another statement we're going to look at where uh, right before that in the confession it says that God is without body, okay? We'll, we'll deal with that uh, in a little while. But this is not talking about body parts. It's talking about parts that make up the whole. So um, what are the parts of this chair? Okay, it's got legs. What else? A seat. There's probably some nails in there. Maybe some glue. What's it made out of? Wood. Okay, there's uh, some kind of varnish on there, right? Um, what's the, what is the wood made out of? Okay, it's a tree. <laughs> 
in the tree, there's, uh, there's, there are, what's that? Okay. Yep. There's cells. We, there's water in there. There's moisture. Um, there are, I mean, we can dial this thing down quite a bit, right? Um, so, uh, if I were to, um, remove one of the legs, what's going to happen? Yeah, it's not going to work properly. If I were to um, heat this chair up to about 400 degrees, what's going to happen? Probably going to burn. Right. So um, all of those various parts are going to do different things, right? So the, uh, the moisture that may contain in it is going to evaporate. The varnish on the chair is going to melt and um, maybe pool or whatever. Uh, some of that's going to evaporate and go off into the air. The wood is going to char, and it'll eventually change what the substance is, right? It'll no longer be wood. It's going to turn into coal or charcoal, um, and on and on and on. We can go with the various things. So we see that the whole, the chair itself, is made up of various parts, right? We just named a bunch of them, and there's uh, many more. Um, What the doctrine of simplicity is saying about God is that he's not made up of different parts. We can't say, well, God is made up of love and God is made up of wrath and God is made up of justice and this and that. We're saying that God is these things. There's a major difference there. Because these aren't all the little ingredients getting thrown into the pot to make up God but rather God is the, uh, the total essence of what each of these things means. So when we say God is love, we're not saying God is loving or God has love or God can show love. We're saying God is love. He is uh, the perfect uh, show of what love is uh, throughout eternity. He is eternally love. God is um, wrathful. Not that he has wrath or he will show wrath, but he is wrathful. Okay, so um, these, when we say God is without parts, we're saying God's not made up of these things that kind of are outside of him and they all come together to make him up. What, maybe this is going too far. What would that mean if God was made up of parts? What would we be saying about God? Okay, that he was, yeah. That he was made, right? But when we understand what we looked at last time, God's, um, um, the eternality of God, uh, then we have to understand that that can't be possible. God can't be um, made up of parts. God is without parts or else he was made. There are things that were out there that existed outside of God that had to come together in order to make him. Does that help? Hopefully. Good. You're, um, Mar- what Mark's doing now is kind of um, pulling together some of these doctrines as we work because he's, he's kind of, we're bleeding over a little bit into the next one, divine impassibility. Um, so that's exactly right. As we, as we deal with these, uh, again, they're going to have a lot of overlap and we're going to have to um, recognize that. But, um, but absolutely, that God's, um, as we talk about the, as we talk about the attributes of God, or even these doctrines in themselves as individual parts, we have to understand that they are what makes up the whole as the whole. They, you know, in God, he's not thinking, okay, I love you now, and now I'm going to pour out my wrath. But we recognize on the cross of Christ, for example, is the greatest show of love and the greatest show of wrath all in the same place, and they do not contradict one another. Um, so we'll deal with that um, as we move on um, to the next one, divine impassibility. This is a statement that God is without passions. And I say this um, and admit to you that this is a very controversial doctrine among evangelical scholars, um, even those um, whom we would uh, otherwise agree with on most things. Um, Nevertheless, our confession um, is very clear on this, and I happen to agree with it. Um, and so as we work it out, you can draw your own conclusions and we can discuss it more. Um, 
Here's the, here's the definition that I've given to you, and we'll uh, work on this a little bit. God is not subject to suffering, pain, or the ebb and flow of involuntary passions. Impassibility does not mean that God is devoid of affection or emotion, but rather in God there is no mutation. God does not experience distress like that which humans feel because of weakness, imperfection, or limited knowledge. Since God is not dependent upon the world, remember we discussed the aseity and the immutability of God, he's outside of uh, time and space and is eternal, he does not become overwhelmed and overcome by the world's opposition. In other words, God does not have mood swings. Questions here. Does this make sense, sort of? <laughs> okay. So here's, here's where the, uh, and we'll deal with this in greater detail, but here's where the controversy comes in uh, among scholars. Um, I think uh, those who oppose this represent it unfairly. Um, but what they would say is that what we're saying in affirming this is that um, we've made it impos- impossible for God to be loving and for God to be wrathful or for God to, um, um, to have uh, compassion or for God to, um, uh, to, to experience um, sadness in a sense over the sins of his people or, or whatever. Um, we're not saying that, and I think uh, I've tried to cover that in the definition. That this does not mean that God is devoid or free from affection. God has emotion. We see that in the scriptures. Um, and it's not fake. It's not something that we have in the Bible just to help us identify with God when really he's uh, stoic and has no concern whatsoever. Um, but what it does mean is that... Um, God's not functioning like us, where you wake up in the morning and you say, well, I'm kind of groggy, I wish I could go back to sleep. And then later, well, I've got energy and I'm happy. And then I eat a big lunch, maybe too much, and I'm tired and dragging, and I'm, I'm kind of frustrated with my boss, and I got a bad phone call, and now I'm upset, and I get home, and things aren't the way I wanted them to be, and now I'm angry. Uh, then I'm about to go to bed. I'm happy because I get to go to sleep. You know, this this is us, right? Um, God does not have these uh, swings of mood. He's not um, the word we used here. There is no mutation of God. Um, he's not changing from what he always is. Remember, God is unchangeable. And so the do- doctrine of divine impassibility is, is um, dealing with this reality that, um, that God is not suffering uh, when the world is blaspheming him. Um, God does not experience pain uh, in the sense that um, he is uh, being tortured or um, that, um, you know, uh, the way that we can experience pain through our senses um, and he doesn't have sort of this roller coaster ride of emotions that all of us experience. Um, go ahead. Yeah, good. Exactly. What's implied in that is is that reality that if that were the case, then something outside of God would affect the essence of who God is. Remember, we we're saying here that. God is most absolute. And if God is most absolute, then nothing outside of him um, is going to change who he is or what he does. Um, God is God and nothing else gets to determine that. If so, God would no longer be God. Um, It would be a contradictory statement to say that um, someone or something changes God and who he is and what he does. Any other thoughts or questions before we press on? We're going to deal with all of these in greater detail, but I want to kind of get our minds thinking on these so that we can work on them together. There's some varying degrees of what critics would say. Some would go as far as saying, yeah, that um, 
you know, we, uh, they would say, well, why pray? If we can't change God's mind and God, how God does what he does, then why pray? Well, we're not praying to change God's mind, if you understand prayer appropriately. Um, some would say, probably the more mild version of it is to say that their assumption is what we're doing with God is saying that he's sort of a, um, he, is, um, he is stoic and sort of just there and administrating all things and letting, letting life happen with us. Um, and he knows how it's going to be and how it always was and everything else through eternity. Um, but he has, his interaction with the world is just sort of out here and he, you know he's not expressing affection and all of these things. So they're saying, what what we believe in their minds is that God isn't truly showing love, or God isn't truly pouring out wrath and all of these things, but that God is just sort of doing these things, and it appears to be that way to us, or that um, you know that the that God is uh, sort of. I guess if we could use the word in our terms, he's heartless in doing these things. He's showing what seems to be love, but uh, he's not really loving. He's just um, kind of doing it. Um, that's a more milder form of what they're critiquing, but it's not accurate. I don't, I don't know of anyone who holds to this doctrine who would say that or believe that. So I think it's kind of a misnomer that they've... Um, they presented. In fact, if you want to read a dissenting opinion, a real popular systematic theology many of you probably have would be Wayne Grudem. He doesn't, he doesn't hold to a divine impassibility. So if you have that systematic theology, you can look that up and read his section on it. Um, I think he's very wrong. <laughs> um, so check that out if you would like. But we'll, we'll deal more with that as we get uh, to that specific doctrine. All right, so let's rewind a little bit, and we're going to go back to divine incomprehensibility. And given our time, we may not even finish this one. We'll see. All right, again, we're dealing with that statement in your confession that God's essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself. Now, remember we talked before about the eternality of God, that God always has been and always will be. Now, the eternality of God insists upon the doctrine of incomprehensibility. If God is eternal, and we affirm that He is, He can never be fully understood by finite, limited human minds because... One reason, the very simple reason, is we exist in space and time. God does not. So the very fact that we're bound by time and space means that we can never understand uh, what it means to be eternal. What does it mean that God always was? Even if you give it your best shot, you're still thinking, I know, that God was, began at some point. God never began. He always was. And he always will be. Um, so we could probably um, just call it quits now because that should be pretty mind-blowing thought. Um, the fact that God always was. Never uh, any change to him. He always has been God and never was anything different than what he is. So that in and of itself um, is uh, reason enough to... Uh, affirm a doc doctrine of divine incomprehensibility. Nevertheless, we will um, give a few other examples and we'll turn to the scriptures. In addition to this, God possesses um, what, we've, uh, what we've been dealing with so far, um, which is incommunicable attributes. Who knows what that is and can kind of give us a summary? What are the incommunicable... What do I mean when we say God has incommunicable attributes? Brenda? Um, okay, he's the ones that we know of, he's communicated them to us in the scriptures, but there's something about them that doesn't, we don't share them. Right, good. Yeah, we don't, we don't share. So th some of those attributes we don't know about at all. And we don't know what those are because we don't know. <laughs> uh, but some of them God has revealed to us, but we don't possess, we can't share, we can't do uh, in any way, shape, or form. So what are some examples of that? 
Go ahead. He's all-knowing, right? His omniscience, His omnipresence, that He's all places at all times, right? These are incommunicable attributes. His eternality, that He's at all places at all times, that He is without a body, (laughs) um, that He is without passion, these things that we've already uh, spoken of. So these are the incommunicable attributes. So these, the fact that God possesses these, um, it insists upon divine incomprehensibility. I can't possibly understand and comprehend why, how it is that God is at all places at all times and yet at the same time He is very um, intimately right here, right now. So how is He at all places? We're not just talking on the earth. We're talking uh, to the outer stretches of the universe and beyond. Because the Bible says in Job that um, the, the edges of the universe, we're talking millions of galaxies away. That's just, that's just kind of the fringes for God. That's just no big deal. Because He created it all and holds it all together. Um, so even beyond that, um, that, that God is existent and He is there. Um, so God cannot ever be fully understood because of man's inability to relate to, possess, or replicate these attributes, which are incommunicable. So let me give you a few examples in the Scripture of um, where we have this idea of his incomprehensibility. Look first at Psalm 145. Psalm 145. And in your most, someone, in your most excited and awe-inspiring abilities, please read verse 3. I shouldn't have qualified it. Now no one's going to (laughs) read. That statement right there, his greatness is unsearchable. So the biblical writers, and you see this time and again, and I'd really encourage you to kind of, maybe this is one of those areas as you read through your Bible you can, uh, you can uh, highlight. His greatness is unsearchable. Um, nobody can plumb the depths of His greatness. There's no possible way that we can even really scratch the surface of His greatness. Because as soon as we uh, think we have a grasp on one thing, we, we unlock uh, the secret closet that brings us and we look around and there's millions more. Um, so we see this time and again, especially in the Psalms, you'll see these sorts of statements. Um, for even the elementary student of the doctrine of God, there's no doubt as to why um, we would read something like this in the Bible. Um, It doesn't take long to recognize the greatness of God is unsearchable. Um, Look at Romans chapter 11. Romans 11, someone read for us, verses 33 through 36. Thank you. So this is the Apostle Paul's kind of moment of... He's just unfolded 11 chapters of the greatness of God and his work in redemption after telling us, here's who you are as man, and here's who God is in his holiness and his righteousness, and here's what he's done for us in Christ Jesus in redeeming us and saving us and calling us to be his own. And he's building and building and building over 11 chapters, and then he gets to this place, and I just imagine Paul falling on his face in this moment and saying, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How in the world can we even begin to fathom his greatness is is where he's, he's driving with this. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Obvious rhetorical questions here. How? How can we even begin to think that we fathom even uh, even the surface of who God is and what He is and all that He has done and is doing? And so Paul gives us a great example of uh, God's incomprehensibility from the Scriptures. He affirms this great doctrine. I'll give you another one. You can write it down, but I'll read it for you. Job 11, 7. Job is speaking with one of his unfriendly friends, Zophar. And um, 
But the friend of Job asks this. It's one of the few times one of his friends has good theology. He says, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Very rhetorical question. I'd encourage you too to read the last few three, four chapters of the book of Job where God asks these sorts of rhetorical questions himself of Job. Job, where were you when I laid out the beginning from the end? Where were you when I laid all the sand upon the beaches, upon the, upon the shores? And he goes on and on and on to point out to Job that, Job, this is you. <laughs> you are small and insignificant in comparison to who I am and what I am and what I have done. And even when you begin to kind of wrap your mind around that, you've only just begun. And I think you will agree with me, the more that we learn about God, the more we realize how little we actually know. (laughs) And the more we recognize that there is to discover. The study of God will extend into eternity and will never have an end. We will never be able to measure or fully know the understanding of God. It is far too great for us to equal or to understand. We will live on to eternity forever and ever and never fully comprehend our Creator. That is an amazing thought. So the doctrine of divine incomprehensibility does not in any way, as we said before, imply that God is completely unknown or that we are unable to have any understanding of his nature and his character and his essence and his attributes. God has very graciously revealed himself to us in two ways. What is the first and most simple way that he's revealed himself to all of mankind? Through, na- through nature or creation, right? What do we call that? What's the theological term for that type of revelation? General revelation, right. God has generally revealed himself to us. So if you're taking notes and you want to write this down, general revelation, two scriptures that will help you here, Romans 1, 19 and 20, and Psalm 19, 1. In Romans 1, Paul is saying, God has shown himself to all mankind everywhere through creation. There's enough there for mankind to know that God exists, that God is holy, God is worthy of worship, God is worthy to be uh, submitted to and followed, and that is enough for all men everywhere to be condemned without ever knowing anything else about God. Psalm 19 and verse 1. So the general revelation of God is speaking about creation, nature. Psalm 19.1, kind of uh, the, summar- the summarized version of that is, hey, go outside and look up. <laughs> God is there and everything screams out that he is there. Um, and Paul is referring to this reality that God writes his law in the conscience of every man And any time you sin, your conscience is screaming out to you, even if you don't know God um, personally, if you don't know Christ, if you've never read his word. um, In time, we suppress that truth of the law and we get to a place where we're comfortable with our sin. Um, But God has revealed himself in that way. That's general revelation. What is the other kind of revelation? What's that? Special or specific revelation. So God revealing himself through his son, Jesus Christ, and through his word, through the scriptures. Um, a good passage uh, for that is Second Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. And, of course, John chapter 1 in its entirety. That God, in his, by his grace... He didn't have to do this, but he did. God has revealed himself to us specifically to tell us who he is, what he requires, and how we can know and be saved by him. That's, that's magnificent. It should give us some pause when we consider um, 
and, and all of us, I speak of myself, and I, I'm sure that we would all agree how, um, how little our desire is for the Word of God when we consider what it is that we have. God speaking directly to us, revealing to us Himself, what He requires, what He has done, how He will save us, how we can know and trust Him. So God has revealed Himself to us generally and specifically or specially. Um, but even so, in that, if God could be perfectly known by finite man, he would not be the infinite God. Only the infinite can fully know that which is infinite. In other words, only God can know God in fullness. First Corinthians 2, verses 10 through Twelve. Let's look at that. First Corinthians two, verses ten through twelve. If someone has that, please read that for us. Great, thank you. So the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And Paul goes on to remind the Corinthians, you don't even know your own mind and heart. How in the world do you expect to know the fullness of the mind and heart of God? Um, no one comprehends the mind of God or um, the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Why would that be? Why would it be the Spirit of God? Well, because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God. <laughs> okay, so that's something else we'll talk about in the future uh, is the Trinitarian nature of all of this and how it works itself out. But The Spirit knows the mind of God because the Spirit is God. But none but God comprehends the fullness of God. And Paul is pointing this out to the Corinthians because they were getting a bit prideful about what they thought they were and what they thought they knew. They thought they had God figured out. Um, And he reminds them, you're not even close. Uh, What you think you know is really not even dealing with the surface. Sure. Sure, that, that, happens, um, that happens often. You'll see, you know, now there, there are those who are very learned um, fools. Um, who can, you can spend a lot of time studying something. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're, uh, you're right or that you know what's true. Um, but when you're spending your, uh, your time searching the Scriptures, uh, digging, learning, growing, being challenged by, uh, looking at every angle and coming to conclusions according to uh, the best available um, with regards to what God has revealed to us. Um, It is a little interesting um, when someone rises up to say, you know, I I think you're wrong. Um, I don't really, um, I just don't agree with your conclusions. Well, why? Let's look at the scriptures and let's deal with the arguments. Well, I don't need to. I just want. I just. You, I just don't agree. Okay, but let's look at what the Bible says and let's deal with these conclusions. Well, I. I don't. I just think that's wrong. My God wouldn't be like that. That's not my God. Well, you're right. It's not your God. <laughs> it's probably a different one altogether. If that's your heart and dealing with these sorts of things. So. Um, it's true. It's a very sad reality that um, the um, the Corinthian heart is uh, very often the heart of um, men and women in the church, and I'm certain we've all been guilty of that on some level. I know I have myself at times. All right, last uh, let's let's do one more little bit, and then we'll uh, wrap up. There's another important, uh, very often overlooked element related to the incomprehensibility of God. So if we're saying that God can, uh, man can never fully comprehend God, another thing that maybe even as we take it a step further, we can say is that man can never fully comprehend any single aspect of God. So any individual, say you... You become a Christian at a very young age and you live on to 120 years old and you spend every day of your life in that time studying every bit that you can about only one of God's attributes. 
You can do that your entire life and you will never move any further than the surface of understanding the fullness of the attribute, that single attribute and its applications. That's amazing. And you can think of, um, there have been, uh, there, every, if you deal with every attribute of God, you kind of get into your study and you realize there's, um, throughout the history of the church, um, there's always those who are kind of identified as, this is the guy. You've got to read everything he's written because he's, he's studied it more than everybody else and he's written all the books and everyone turns to him. He's the one to go to. Every, every doctrine, every element of God's um, attributes has that and, um, and that's helpful to the church. But even those we have to recognize, they've only scratched the surface. There is much more to discover and much more to learn. That's why we can have a uh, hundred books written on the incomprehensibility of God and, uh, and then write a hundred more and still uh, we're, we're just scratching the surface. Um, I'll give you some other scripture references. We already dealt with one of them. God's greatness in Psalm 145.3. His understanding in Psalm 147.5. His knowledge, Psalm 139.6. We read Romans 11.33, His riches, His wisdom, His judgments, His ways. All of these things and many more are all beyond our ability to understand them fully. Isaiah 55.9 affirms this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So I'll share share a quote with you and then we'll have to wrap it up. We may know something about God's love, power, wisdom, and so forth, but we can never know His love completely or exhaustively. We can never know His power exhaustively. We can never know His wisdom exhaustively and so forth. In order to know any single thing about God exhaustively, we would have to know it as He Himself knows it. That is, we would have to know it in its relationship to everything else about God and its relationship to everything else about creation throughout all eternity. We can only exclaim with David, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Psalm 139, 6. So it is very important for us to understand that the incomprehensibility of God is defining the relationship of the created creature's ability to know and comprehend the Creator Himself. In other words, the Creator knows Himself fully, but is incomprehensible to His creatures. So this is not, um, in one sense, not an attribute of God... Um, but rather a description of the creature's relationship to the Creator. So we will uh, we'll end there and pick up there um, as we press forward next week. Any comments or questions before we close? Everyone tracking along, hopefully? Okay. So, parents, when uh, your um, children say, I'm bored... You can say, well, go study God. (laughs) You won't be bored anymore. That will never end. I I pray, I really hope that this is um, helpful to all of us and meaningful and not just kind of a a bore or anything like that. Um, I know some of this is kind of heavy waiting and um, it, it can be very difficult and spin your mind a little bit and I, I assure you I've uh, just the last two days I've listened to several lectures on some of these things and I get about 10 minutes in and I just have to push pause and say uh, man I gotta go take a break I don't <laughs> my head hurts <laughs> my body hurts I gotta go take a nap um, it's uh, it is some very difficult things we're dealing with um, but I appreciate you sticking through it and having a desire to grow in these things um, I'm glad we can come together on Wednesday nights and, um, you know, not talk about, you know, ten ways to 
love our wife better and go home, um, but that we can actually deal with the things of God that will communicate in a way that we do want those things for ourselves and we make application on our own because God is uh, known more by us. So thank you. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll be, we'll be done. God, as uh, I consider your greatness and your majesty, it seems um, it seems almost unreal that um, I would be able to even approach you in prayer, would even be called on by you to come to this point where we speak directly to you and you hear us. Not only do you hear us, but that you hear us and you answer us, and you care for us, and you do what is greatest for us, that you would be glorified through us. Lord, truly, we marvel at your incomprehensibility. We marvel at this great reality that we will never plumb the depths of who you are, of what you are, what you have done and are doing. In our finite minds, and even in our eternal souls, that we will never come close to having a full understanding of who you are. And Lord, that alone reminds me that you are worthy of all worship and all glory and all praise. And so I pray, God, you would fill our hearts with a greater desire to worship you based on this very truth alone. And that as we continue to press forward in our study of you, uh, that you would reveal uh, great and glorious things to us. You would help us to understand these things. I pray, God, that you would give us all a greater desire to know and study more. And that each of us would would find great uh, assurance in these wonderful truths. Um, that you would be glorified in us and through us and in transforming our minds. Uh, to make us better students of the Word and uh, greater followers of Christ for your glory. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a good night.